Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Well, we're going to get going here in a second. Um, a couple of you already said, hey, you look worn out. You look tired. First of all, thanks. Um, uh, second of all, you would be correct. I pulled a muscle in my back. It's so at 3 o'clock this morning. I was still having a heating pad, like, right here. And so, yeah, getting old stinks, doesn't it? But anyway, before we get into that, Megan has some visitors here that she wants to introduce you to. Yeah, so... Um I teach a Bible class, which is fun, and Hannah is one of my students, and that's how we met, and they are from the Caribbean. Um, not really, their accents are fake, but just enjoy it, whatever, you know, laugh at them, be cool, whatever. No, on a serious note, this is Hannah and Richard. They're my friends. They've been here for a couple of days. I'm just going to let them introduce themselves. Um, they have a church in the Caribbean. It's really exciting stuff, so. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Megan. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Richard, as you heard. You know, my beautiful wife is Hannah. Uh, you already heard her here singing. We're just so grateful to be here to worship with you. I was born Jamaican, um, so yeah, man. <laughs> and uh, we live in Grenada, where, where Hannah is from, and we serve a small uh, Stone Campbell congregation in Karaku, which is another smaller island. It's just so fun to be able to be here. We're visiting family in the U.S., but our first time in Ohio. And um, we're grateful that we're able to spend it with you this morning. All right. If you get a chance, say hi to him after service. It was funny. Last night, last night um, I preached, jumped in my car, drove down to the river, officiated a wedding uh, outside, and then, and, and, and Richard and Hannah went with us, and then we went to dinner, and sometime during dinner, Richard looks at me and goes, is it always this cold in Ohio? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, just a couple of uh, announcements uh, before we get going. Um, first of all, um, I would be remiss, my, my hero, my mama, had a birthday yesterday. So if you see her, tell her happy birthday. Wave your hand there, Mama. Show everybody. She's 39. Um, so happy birthday. We sang happy birthday to her last night. Um, there are other you know, announcements and stuff in the bulletin. Always take a bulletin home with you. There's prayer lists in there. Be praying over those every day. One prayer list that came in. Dora Carmen, who many of you know, uh, broke her ankle and she can't put any weight on it for three weeks. So if any of you would like to volunteer to bring food to the family, uh, we have their address, or if you don't want to go all out there or whatever, you can just bring food here to the church, and Ralph or I or somebody will deliver it to them just to help them out, and that would be appreciated. We have the holidays coming up. It's a little weird this year because, um, as many of you know, we have a Saturday service and a Sunday service, and our Saturday service this year would fall on Christmas. Well, we're not having that service. So there'll be no service on Saturday, uh, Christmas Day. Spend that day with your family, but we will have normal ceremony, service, all that kind of stuff at 1030 on the 26th. Um, 
Some people have asked, what about New Year's Eve and New Year's Day? Um, those of you who are asking obviously have a drinking problem. Um, our Saturday service is at 5 o'clock, and we're done by 6, for goodness sakes. Were you really going to start partying that early? And then if you can't make it to 10.30 service the next morning, you partied too much now, didn't you? So, yes, we'll have service on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, regular times, all right? So, all that being said, and also, of course, we have our Christmas Eve service coming up. That'll be at 4 o'clock, Christmas Eve, traditional candle lighting service. And so, be sure to ask a friend, bring an unchurched friend, whatever. And we hope that Ralph will be back on the stage by then. If you don't know, Ralph had surgery, and um, he's fine, but they told him he couldn't sing for a couple of weeks. Hopefully, Ralph will be, uh, be cleared by then. He has an appointment coming up. We're in the book of Isaiah, and we're really looking at how Isaiah prophesied the coming of Jesus Christ and those prophecies. Last week, you know, Dad hit Isaiah 53, and, and this week I'm going to look at a couple other things in Isaiah. But you need to know some things about prophets and, and, and prophecy. You know, I was always, before I became a Christian, I was always under the assumption that prophets just kind of went into this, like, weird state, and then they just spouted things about the future. That's not true. Um, I was lucky enough, but when I, when I became a Christian and I decided to go to seminary, um, I didn't know anything about seminaries. I'd been an atheist for 10 years. I didn't know anything about evangelical Christianity really at all. And so I looked around, I was like, where am I going to go to seminary? And so I applied to a number of places. And one of the places I applied to where I ended up going uh, was Abilene Christian University. Now, I'd never even heard of Abilene Christian University. I had no idea where Abilene, Texas was. Um, and so I, I, okay, he said, when I was in seminary, the best Bible students came from Abilene Christian. You should apply there. I said, okay. And then I started to get my acceptance letters back, and the seminaries were like, all these other seminaries were like, yes, you're accepted, and it'll only cost you $3,000 a semester. And Abilene Christian came back and said, because you're a preacher's kid, and you come from our tradition, and so forth, it'll cost you $100 a semester. And I said, I'm going to find Abilene on a map, and I'm going there. And I did. And I'm glad I did. Because one of my professors was a guy by the name of John Willis. John Willis did his Ph.D. in Old Testament while my dad was doing his graduate work at the same time in Vanderbilt in Nashville. And John Willis wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah. John Willis memorized the book of Isaiah in Hebrew. He used to lecture from Isaiah without a Bible. It was so intimidating, students started to complain to the dean so, Dr. Willis eventually relented, and he would bring a Bible and open it up, and he would sit it there, and he would lecture on Isaiah. And Dr. Willis, because he was nice, he would bring cookies to class. We had three-hour classes, and at the every hour, we would have a cookie break. So, at one of the cookie breaks, while he was lecturing on Isaiah, I went by, and I walked by his podium. His Bible was open, not to Isaiah, and it was upside down. And he just memorized this stuff. And he taught me a great deal. And, and Dr. Willis said, look, you need to understand something about prophets and prophecy. Here's how it works. God tells the prophet what to say. He says, you go say this. 
The prophet goes, what does that mean? God basically says, you don't need to know, you just need to say it. And so they'll go and they'll say it, and they may not even realize really what they're talking about. And often it is true that if you read the prophets, if you study the prophets, prophets are not easy reading, but great study. If you study the prophets, you'll see that 90% of what they're talking about is not necessarily dealing with the future. Typically what a prophet does is tell Israel to get its act together, that they're not being the people of God. But occasionally they will say these things, and lo and behold, 700 years later, they come true in the person of Jesus Christ. When scholars have looked at all the prophecies in Isaiah about Jesus Christ, one guy consulted a statistician. He said the odds of these prophecies being about one person is about one in 350,000. And yet 700 years later, there it is. But I want to say this first. As impressive as it is, and I'll talk more about this, about why God gives prophecy and how important that is to our faith. And it is. It's, you can, to say, look, all these things were said 700 years ago, and here they came true. And so, like, I've got a friend named Eric Shabo. Uh, he works for a group called Ratio Christi, which is a Christian apologetic organization. They work on campuses trying to bring people to faith. And Eric... Some of you will know his family because his grandfather was the guy who ran and owned Pop's Place in Wheelersburg for, for many years, Pop Chabo. That's his grandfather. And so Eric, he, Eric grew up in Columbus, and he grew up in a Jewish area of town, and he has a real heart for leading Jewish people to Jesus Christ. And so one of the things he'll do is, if you go back and you listen to Dad's sermon from last week, he'll take Isaiah 53 He'll take Isaiah off of it. He'll take chapter and verses off of it, just the text. And he'll take a sheet, and he'll hand it to one of his Jewish friends and say, read that. And they'll read it and say, okay. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. He'll go, exactly. And that was written by a Jewish prophet 700 years before he was born. You see what he's doing? And that's important. But as impressive as Isaiah is and how it points to Christ, you got to remember it's not the first time Christ is mentioned in the Old Testament. Christ is found all through the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees and Jewish leaders. He said, all Scripture points to me. Now, when he's saying that, there's no New Testament. There's only the Old Testament. And he's saying, all Scripture points to me. Now, the first place, of course, he's mentioned is in Genesis 1, where the Father, Son, and Spirit are talking about creation. But then he's mentioned again in Genesis 3. The very first prophecy of the coming Christ is in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, and God comes down and says, because of what you've done... A man will have to come, and he will crush the serpent's head. He will destroy the works of the devil, but he will suffer a fatal wound. 
Now, who does that sound like? It's Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3. So as impressive as it is that it was there, these prophecies are here 700 years. They're actually there thousands of years before. Because God knows what he's doing. God is never taken by surprise. God is always on his throne. All right. So Isaiah. Isaiah gets chosen by God to be a prophet, to go speak to Israel. And all we know about Isaiah, and you can read about him not only in the book Isaiah, but also 2 Kings, is that he did whatever God told him to do, including some weird stuff to make a point. We also know from Jewish writings, Jewish history, that he was martyred. In fact, he was sawed in half with a wooden saw. Ouch. So much for the health and wealth gospel. But in Isaiah 7, 14, it says this. I want to talk about this for a second. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So, you've got a prophecy 700 years before of, and let's call it the right thing, it's the virgin conception. Virgin birth, if you think about it, doesn't make any sense. I know everybody calls it that, so I'll I'll refer to it as that, but that doesn't really make any sense. It's a virgin conception. Now, this is a question I had. Now, when I became a Christian at 24, um, I picked, I decided, probably a good idea to read the Bible. I made the mistake of starting in Genesis and just working my way all the way through. I don't recommend that if you're a new Christian. Because when you get to Leviticus, you have questions. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, my parents, the Christmas before, had given me a John MacArthur study Bible. Now, I was an atheist at the time, so I thought that was a crappy Christmas gift. And until I became a Christian, it just collected dust. But then when I became a Christian, I opened it up, and I started reading through. And of course, this is weird stuff. But And then you, I struggled with book after book. I struggled with Leviticus. I struggled with numbers. It took me a long time to kind of realize what God was doing in there. So like I told you a couple weeks ago, it was just, it was just fairly recently that I learned this. Like what, I, I'm reading through Genesis, and I get through it, and okay, so there's creation, and then you get human beings in the Garden of Eden, and then there's the fall, and there's Cain and Abel, and you keep reading, and it's like, and such and such lived so long and died. And such and such lived so long and died. And such and such lived so long and died. And I'm thinking, why am I reading this? And it wasn't until a scholar by the name of Michael Bird pointed out to me that the point is that after the fall, when sin entered the world, which means death enters the world, the point is not that these people lived this long or their names. The point is they died, they died, they died, they died, they died, they died. The inspired author is hammering home what sin does, that it results in death. And when I read Isaiah 7, 14 for the first time, I thought, okay, time out. Why? Why? 
I mean, it's just weird, isn't it? I struggled with this for a long time. And part of the reason was, you know, I used to, when I was a kid, I'd ride around with Dad, and, and um, Dad would always, he'd rarely ever have music on. Dad used to love to have, he, he'd, he'd flip around to the Christian stations and listen to different preachers, whether he agreed with them or not, you know. And, he'd, and of course, I'm sitting there, and this was back in the 70s, so we didn't, you know, require seatbelts, so sometimes I was rolling around like a billiard ball in the back seat. But anyway, because my dad drives 80 miles an hour around curves, but... I, it's true. My mom kicked him off her car insurance. True story. Because um, he had so many tickets. Not lying, am I, Mom? Um, <laughs> so, but I listened to this, and, you know, I started to absorb a little bit of, like, fundamentalist Christianity and evangelical Christianity, and I'm an evangelical, but it's like, I'm sitting there listening to this, and, and whenever they would talk about sex, it was just Weird. Because it seemed like the overall message that I was getting, even like, like you get books in youth group or whatever, and they talk about it, and all they talk about is like disease and, 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 you know, and pregnancy outside of marriage and, and all this other kind of stuff. And the whole message seemed to be sex is dirty, sex is filthy, so save it for the one you love. Like, what? And so you can look at the virgin conception of Jesus and, and go, see, no, 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 no. God completely approves of sex within marriage. If you're married, I mean, what does he say? Go forth and multiply. He's not talking about addition. He's not talking about mathematics. He's talking about making babies. If you don't know how that's done, we'll talk later. The whole book of Song of Songs is about a marriage, you know, a, a married couple enjoying sex. I hear it all the time. It's like, no, 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 that's not what that's about. It's about Jesus and the church. And I'm like, hey, Jesus would not do that to the church. Um, I'm sorry. That is not what that book is about. Read it. It's, it's about that, and it's fine, because, you know, you, I tell people, I tell young people all the time, find a good Christian, a committed Christian of the opposite sex, get married, and knock yourselves out. Not literally, that'd be weird, especially if the kids found you, but you know what I mean. Go for it. Have fun. So why the virgin birth? I wrestled this for a long time, and um, a few years ago, uh, that's about 10 years ago now, I guess, um, I was working for a Christian organization, and we were having an event in Maui, because that's what I do for the Lord. And um, I suffer, folks, I suffer. Um, at the Rich Carlton. Anyway, um, and the speaker for this event was a guy by the name of Dr. Wayne Grudem. Brilliant, brilliant man. Harvard undergraduate, PhD from Cambridge, taught in two different, three different seminaries, you know, in the last 40-odd years, written a lot of great books. And in his systematic theology, he wrote this, Why the Virgin's Conception. Here's what he says, and it's in your bulletin, because I wanted you to have it. First of all, it shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. 
just as God had promised that the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, like we talked about, would ultimately destroy the serpent. So God brought it about by his own power, not through mere human effort. The virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that salvation can never come through human effort, but must be the work of God himself. That's the first reason. God has no problem with sex. And by the way, despite what our Catholic brothers and sisters said, disagree with them, Mary did not remain a virgin. She had other kids. James, Jude, she had other kids. She and Joseph got busy at some point, and that's okay. That's all right. But what God wanted to make clear is that the Savior of the world, our King, our Lord, our sacrifice, our righteousness, is from the work of the Lord alone. No one else. He was not just a good person, born naturally, and adopted by God. He was God. Which brings number two. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of the full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means God used to send his son into the world as a man. Was God, was Jesus God? Was he a man? Yes. He was both. Fully God, fully man. And how did that happen? Not by Joseph, by the Holy Spirit. Number three. The virgin birth also makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Because he was not a human creation because he was not, didn't come around natural ways. He did not inherit Adam's sinfulness like all of us have. And if you think you're immune from that, wait till service is over and you start driving through New Boston. Tell me I'm wrong. The things that go through your heads, I should be, I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself. So that's the reason for the Holy Spirit conceiving Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's not that God looks at sex as something that is bad. Within the confines of a marriage, it's beautiful. But Jesus was to be different. He was to be different. All right. Not going to stop there. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be the path of salvation for all people. Isaiah 11.10 and 42.1-4. Isaiah 11.10. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. You see, you need to understand something. And this happens, this happens today. We read our Gospels, and we look at the Pharisees, and we see how, how really racist they were, and how they believed they were the only ones, only ones who deserved God's favor, the only ones who could even approach the one true God. And yet, 
if they'd read their own Bibles, they would have seen that when the Messiah came, the Messiah was not just coming for Israel, but for everyone. The offer, God's offer of salvation is made to everyone. And this ticked them off so much. Do you remember what happened when Jesus preached his first sermon in his hometown? What was his sermon? He started talking about the Lord working outside of Israel, and they tried to kill him for it. I've had nasty looks. I've, I've had hecklers. I've had people walk out. I've never had somebody try to kill me yet. There's time. That's how seriously they took that. But it, you don't read that and think, oh, that's so quaint, that's so ancient, all this other kind of stuff. You know, back when I would go to the gym twice a day, and I would talk to people and try to get them to come to church, unchurched people to come to church, guess what the number one thing I would hear was? Well, my past, well, because of this, this and that, people will judge me, I'm just not there yet. I'm just, I don't have my life together yet. And I always tell them, then you never will. Are you telling me you have to be holy before you can be saved? Really? Doesn't work that way. When somebody was trying to bring me to faith back in 1992, he told me. Because that's one of the things I would bring up. It's like, ah, but I'm a preacher's kid. And I've seen there's so much hypocrisy in the church. And he basically said that. There's not. There's hypocrisy everywhere, dummy. I always I love to hear that. Even when I was an atheist, that kind of rankled me. I'd hear, you know, later on, because he told me this, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And then later on, I'd be like at a bar somewhere or something like that, and I'd be sitting around listening, and people would be, ah, oh, those Christians. And then you'd hear some guy go off and brag about a bunch of nonsense, and it's like, oh, no, there's no hypocrisy at the bar. Give me a break. There's hypocrisy everywhere. But the simple fact is, this guy told me, he said, if there's a perfect church, the moment any human being walks in, it becomes imperfect. We all got our stuff. Dr. Fred Craddock used to say, every single person has a dark, unevangelized corner of their life. We're all sinners. We are all sinners. The, the sins change. The temptations change. I don't have the same temptations at 49 that I had at 29. You know, at 29, I wanted to, you know, chase women and, and go to bars. Now that just sounds like a lot of work. That sounds exhausting. Now, oh, goodness sakes, you get to an age where it's like what you're looking most forward to is sleep. You know, my temptation is I just don't want to get up off the couch. It's just, these things change, but they're all there. And so the people still feel like they can't walk in these doors. Folks, we're not any better than anybody out there on the street right now. We are just, or hopefully you are, saved and forgiven. That's it. There's no right to look down on anyone else. None. You have not, if you're a Christian, you have not earned a thing. You may have come forward, squirt some tears. We may have taken you over there and dunked you. 
But all you did, all you were, was a beggar receiving a gift. That's it. Keep that in mind. Jesus was and is a salvation to all people. He offers it to all. Isaiah predicted, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, God gave him the words that he would have a miraculous ministry. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. Now, you need to understand something about this. You guys know how I feel about faith healers. I don't like them. Um, You know, I see these people who charge tickets for you to come into an arena for the possibility of getting healed. And my question always is to them, if you have this great gift of God, why aren't you at a children's cancer hospital? Not charging a thing. That irritates me. But you need to ask why I believe people can be healed. I I pray for people to, to be healed. I've had two very big health crises in my life. First time I was told that I had colon cancer. Fortunately, that was not true. It was benign, really. And the second time I had a staph infection, what they call pyelonidal cyst, and I went through three surgeries and, and, and spent an entire year laying on my stomach, and I was just miserable. And I prayed to be healed, and I wanted to be healed. I believe God can heal, but the reason when Jesus shows up and he starts healing people is not primarily just to alleviate their ailment, though he did have compassion on them. His primary reason for doing that was he was preaching. He was saying, I'm the Messiah. That's one. And two, the kind of Messiah I am is that I will make all things new. And there will be no sickness and no death. And I will wipe every tear from their eye. It was pointing to the future. It was pointing to the future. I, I, you know, getting old is not for sissies, is it? I, I, you know, because I'm in my 40s, my wife's in her 30s. And so I get to watch this kind of in the rear view where she's like, she'll go, this is sore. I don't understand why this is sore. Welcome to growing old. It's sore and you didn't even use it, did you? Yeah? And, you know, and it's just one of those things. You get older and things start happening, and it's, there's grace in it in this aspect. It's a reminder we only have so much time, and we have work to do. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have work to do. And so, even this week, you know, it's not not serious, but it's a pain to pull a muscle in your back. I mean, all week long, poor Megan, she's sick of me. I've been just just staggering around all week going, ah, you know. She's like, oh, shut up. (laughs) Go put a heating pad on. Be quiet. So, but it is a reminder of that. It's very easy, as I've said again and again and again. And one of the things Isaiah is preaching that Jesus pointed out to all of us, we only have so much 
time. We don't know how much time that is. None of us do. Only God knows. And we need to make the most of it. Amen? Isaiah predicted, prophesied about John the Baptist, about Jesus conquering death. But here's one thing I want to get. This is, okay, this is where I make some people mad. What would a sermon be without it? When I was growing up, every Christian home that I went into, somewhere, some way, had a portrait of Jesus. Have you seen these? A flowing hair, a little mullet-like, rosy cheeks, like he had a makeup artist following him around, perfectly trimmed beard, and a Middle Eastern man with blue eyes? Okay. You know what he looks like? How many of you are old enough to remember BJ and the Bear? Remember the guy from BJ and the Bear? That's who he looks like. Folks, a Jewish man in the first century did not look like he was driving a semi with a chimp. He did not look like he was the lead singer of a southern rock band. Isaiah says in 53.2, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So what's Isaiah saying? He's saying Jesus looked like everybody else, pretty ordinary. And about 20 years ago, the BBC actually did this. I'm not a big fan of the BBC, but this, this was cool. They took the skeletons of Jewish males from the first century, from around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so forth, and they put together a composite of what the average Jewish man would look like. Chris, show them. That's more what Jesus would look like. That. Now, I don't think it is any accident that he is neither black nor white. Get my point? He looked average. And by the way, I hate these portrayals, whether they're in movies or or whatever. You've all seen them. Jesus is walking around and he looks like he's 105 pounds soaking wet. Are you going to tell me that a guy who swung a heavy hammer for 17 years and subsisted off of fish, figs, and almonds looked like that? I don't think so. He looked more like a weightlifter. There's a reason why. You got to remember, yes, he was fully God and fully man, but he wasn't Superman. He didn't come here, you know. And so, how could he live 40 days without food or water? Because he was in good shape. How could he survive the beating and the bloodletting and everything else and then hang on a cross for six hours? He was in good shape. Not necessarily the Jesus you think of. Now, why do I say that? What difference does any of that make? We are visual creatures. Let's face it. We just are. We make a lot of judgments based upon appearance. We know we shouldn't, but we do. 
And if you're in your mind, the Lord you're praying to looks like a yoga instructor with a mullet, instead of the, you know, hammer-swinging dude that he was, your sinfulness is going to creep in. You're going to, their prayers are going to be, you're going to think you can manipulate that guy. And you can't. Trust me, I've tried. How many of you don't even, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll just go ahead and confess as I wrap up. I've done this. You know, I don't gamble, but I do occasionally buy a lottery ticket. Especially when it gets like 300, 400, 500 million. And when I'm buying the ticket, what's going through my head is, oh Lord, you know what good I could do with this. I'm not just talking 10%, Lord. And I am talking gross. Not net. We're talking pre-tax. Don't tell me you haven't done it. Speaking of hypocrisy. Um, but you can't do that. It doesn't do any good. See, a couple of things... You need to realize, by looking at these prophecies, and we've just looked at a handful of them, 700 and some years, why would God do that? First of all, to show his people you can trust his word. He gives it, and he keeps it. A prophecy given will be a prophecy fulfilled. That's one. Two, he's in control. When you can look 700 years in the future and say, this is going to happen this way, you're in control. I know a lot of people are going through a lot of things. And it's been hectic at our house. Megan basically working two full-time jobs and me walking around going, ah! And then her dogs and get me started. But no matter what you're going through, job pressure, family pressure, ordinary aches and pains, or maybe something more serious, we're always happy to pray for you. But no matter what happens, God is in control. God is on his throne. And no matter how bad things may be now or tomorrow or next week, for those of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ, the day will come when the trumpet will sound, our Lord will appear, and he will make all things new. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you use your word to glorify yourself, to show that your word can be trusted, that you are in control of history, that you will make all things new, a new heavens, a new earth. And because of your grace, we are blessed enough to spend eternity with you and with each other. 
We praise you and thank you as we roll into this holiday season. May we not think about gifts or trees or decorations or anything else, but simply you. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God keep you. Be praying for each other. Be praying for me, especially because the deal I have with my wife is I have to watch Hallmark Christmas movies at night. And those things are from the devil. See ya. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.